possible that we might see record viewing figures having to reduce their advertising outlay as well. pretty positive for the game sector. has increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. everyone and welcome to the first 2021 edition of the AMP podcast. Today I'll be joined by Guy Bisson, Tony Maroulis, Rahul Patel and Louise Shorthouse who will be looking at the year ahead and also discussing some of Ampere's latest research output. First up, I'm going to be talking to Guy and his thoughts on this year's big streaming trend which will be compounding. Thanks for joining us Guy. So firstly, what is compounding and how is it going to affect the industry? Well, compounding is a rather inelegant word to try to describe a series of trends along the value chain that I think will be prevalent and at the fore of the industry throughout 2021 and beyond. Uh, Compounding in, in respect of combining things is one way to think about it. So if we think about business models, for example, We've already seen during 2020, particularly from the Studio Direct platforms, the emergence of hybrid business models that combine advertising with subscription and sometimes with additional revenue streams. That is a form of compounding. Consumers, we know, bundle multiple streaming services, so they are compounding in the household. Disney is offering a package of its channels that is compounding. So what is the next step? As COVID has led us to a point where streaming has grown very, very strongly, the industry has reached a pivot point. And I think going forward, the combination of services into packages, into thematic packages offered to subscribers at a discount will be a key form of compounding in 2021 that will also help us break through the price ceiling, which threatens to uh, put put a halt on growth of streaming services within the households. But there are other aspects of the value chain as well where compounding is taking effect. Companies are compounding their divisions internally to re-engineer for a global future. We've also got broadcaster VOD players combining their services for scale and strength. That's another form of compounding. And finally, uh, in the business chain, I think we see compounding in terms of the content offer. So we've increasingly seen services that focus on one specific area, whether that be drama or sport or something else within streaming. We will increasingly see multiple different types of content within a single service. And how are we seeing this play out regionally? Is it happening more so in some places than others? Well, in respect that it's really a future trend, we're not seeing it play out at all at the moment. I guess what's happened so far in some of those um, aspects that I just mentioned around companies reorganizing uh, and business models combining AVOD, SVOD, etc., is being driven by global players. And by global players, we effectively mean the US players, of course, who are going global. So I think that's where the impetus is coming from. Um, Where will it play out throughout 2021? Well, certainly in the US. uh, Next would be um, Europe. But interestingly, some of the more emerging markets, in a way, 
have embraced some of the compounding trends a little earlier, particularly around the way that they combine business models within their streaming platforms and offers. And then what impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on this trend? Well, I think uh, the fundamental of COVID-19 and its impact on the industry is that it's accelerated trends that were happening anyway. So a lot of the things that we were all talking about before we'd even heard of COVID-19 have been accelerated by, by the crisis. Of course, chief among them is streaming, is the transition of audience to streaming platforms, but it's also boosted consumption within that environment. It's accelerated business model changes. It's accelerated the way that studios and other content providers look at that sector. And I think the the way that we've seen the direct consumer platforms evolve and the way that we've seen studios like Disney and Warner reorganize around their streaming and direct platforms is a direct result of that acceleration that we saw during 2020. So you mentioned how compounding plays out for streaming services as a whole. What impact is this going to have on their business models in 2021? Well, I think it's about focusing in on that direct and that streaming segment of the market. That is where growth is coming from. Of course, it's Hobson's choice in a way. Um, If you're a business like Disney that has theme parks and, and other forms like theatrical that have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic, you really have no choice but to focus on streaming. But I, I, I do think that in terms of business models, it will be about coming to arrangements that allow the aggregators to package streaming services in a way that makes them attractive or more attractive from a price perspective to the end consumer, but also in terms of a convenience perspective. In a way, it's coming full circle because, of course, we're all familiar with these models from the traditional pay TV space. Uh, But at the moment, the business has not worked on that basis and no one has really taken the plunge and said, look, I'm going to I'm I'm not only going to aggregate within the platform separate apps, but I'm going to aggregate the streaming services into packages. And I'm going to I'm going to give you a discount if you if you purchase that package from me. And I think that will be one change that we'll begin to see during during the year. Thank you for your time, Guy. It'll be really interesting to see how the trend plays out this year. So moving on to Disney+, Plus, which has, I think it's fair to say, surpassed everyone's expectations in how well it's done. Tony, you've done some analysis on exactly how they've exceeded these expectations and the drivers behind their success. Now, before we get into the reasons behind that, can you give us some top line numbers on their subscribers and the growth that they've achieved in 2020? Yeah, of course, certainly. So it's always good to put everything into context. So Disney Plus has had a stellar year in 2020. It went from being available in just five countries at the end of 2019, with around 26.5 million subscribers, to launching in more than 30 countries by the end of 2020, and securing over 85 million subscribers before Christmas, which was their original target in 2024. And to put this into some perspective, Disney Plus is now the fifth largest OTT service globally in terms of subscriptions. What do you think was the key reason for their success last year? Well, Disney Plus had somewhat of a perfect storm of circumstances. It was was the first major studio to throw its weight behind an OTT strategy, and the world's eyes were always going to be on it. 
Now, were the service to struggle to gel with, with end users, this could be a disaster, of course, and confusing or unpopular decisions would be front and center. And there was perhaps a little bit of that as its flagship TV show, The Mandalorian, was released weekly in new markets, even though it was available as a full season elsewhere. However, it has largely gone from success to success. Its yearly discounted plans, competitive pricing, the first mover advantage, and of course, the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 meant that it kept delivering positive results and subscription gains. The coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent government orders for the closure of schools and and in particular were huge initial boosts as working parents saw Disney Plus as a last resort childminder while they continue to work. So in addition to all of that, Disney's been really good at striking partnership deals with telcos and pay TV providers. How big of a contributor has that been to its success? Well, Disney's partners have been a critical part of its launch strategy. Disney managed to start off with an addressable market of over 700 million potential subscribers just through their partnerships with telcos and pay TV providers globally. But importantly, none of these partnerships were truly exclusive in the sense that anyone with a broadband connection could still sign up to the service. By doing this, they didn't alienate potential subscribers who were not ex- existing subscribers of their partner's services. New users simply didn't get discounted or free access to the service for the first few months or so the way their partners offered. So finally, they've set themselves quite an ambitious target of 230 to 260 million subscribers by 2024. Now, do you think this is realistic and how do you see them achieving this? Well, I mean, when Disney Plus launched, the target of you know, 60 to 90 million goal seemed ambitious for 2024. And obviously they achieved this in under a year of operation. I don't believe anyone will be betting against Disney Plus achieving its new target of 230 to 260 million, especially as there is still plenty of room to grow within the existing markets and, of course, 160 more countries to launch in. Thank you, Tony. We're now going to be speaking to Rahul, who's been looking into the opportunity for US AVOD services in the UK. Thanks for joining me, Rahul. Um, What is it about the UK market which would make it a logical next step for US AVOD services to expand into? The UK market in particular stands out because consumers here are already highly accustomed to using free video on demand services. And that's compared to not only major European markets, but also major markets right across the globe. Our latest wave of consumer surveys found that 64% of UK internet users had used a catch up or AVOD service in the past month, compared to just 40% in both France and Germany. By extension, something that also plays into this is that the UK also has a high tolerance towards ads. Again, looking at our latest consumer surveys, 38% of UK internet users don't mind seeing ads while watching TV, which is higher than any other market in the European Big Five. So not only is the UK the next logical step for US AVOD services looking to expand internationally, it is also a prime candidate for being a stepping stone for further European penetration in the future. Um, have these services launched into other international markets with success that they could potentially replicate in the UK? Um, Tubi in particular is an interesting platform to observe in this instance. Um, It's a US service that has launched into other English-speaking markets like Canada and Australia with significant success um, across 2020. Our catalogue tracking for these particular markets shows that the volume of content available is steadily growing. Tubi also launched in Mexico last year and is looking to roll out in the UK in the near future, hoping to replicate its success elsewhere. And IMDb TV, which is owned by Amazon, is a little further behind in terms of its international expansion, as it's only available in the US right now. 
but it is also scoping out a UK launch potentially for 2021. Now, one of the really unique things about the UK is that it's got a really strong broadcaster-led service market. So things like iPlayer, All4, etc. How do you think the US AVOD services will compare and compete against these platforms? You're right. The UK AVOD market is already quite mature because of the long-standing dominance of BVOD services. But you can begin to notice a gap in the market when comparing the catalogues of these BVOD services to those of SVOD services and US AVOD services. The BVOD services tend to have smaller catalogues and a strong focus on local content. They also can't match SVOD services or US AVOD services on quality within highly rated scripted genres like comedy and crime and thriller. Essentially, this identifies a gap for ad supported services that offer high quality international content across a variety of genres, which are already characteristics of SVOD services and more importantly, US AVOD services looking to expand internationally. Staying on the theme of BVOD services in the UK, do you think that there is an appetite amongst consumers for AVOD services, given that iPlayer is the most used broadcaster-led service and that it's ad-free? That's a very good point. Um, BBC iPlayer is an ad-free service and the most significant contributor to the UK's catch-up usage. But other major BVOD platforms like All4 and ITV Hub, which are ad-supported, are still very popular. Our latest consumer survey found that these two services are regularly used by around 30% of UK internet users, which is roughly the same level as the UK's second most popular SVOD service, Amazon Prime Video. And I think uh, the content perspective is what's important here. All4 is an interesting example because it is specifically now branding itself as the UK's largest free streaming service and is drawing in more viewers by offering box sets of acclaimed US TV series like The West Wing and Seinfeld. So with the right content offer, I think there's definitely a space for new AWOL services to compete with the ad-free BBC iPlayer. Thank you for that, Rahul. Now, finally, with our new game service launching, I'm joined by my colleague, Louise, who has been digging around our consumer data to understand more about US gamers. Louise, you and the games team have been analysing the consumer data from our Q4 2020 survey, and you've been looking specifically at the profile of gamers in the US. What were some of the overall key findings and data points that you found? So we found that 79% of respondents self-identify as gamers. So that's actually more than three quarters of the US online population. There's also a very even gender split. So males are only very slightly more likely to be gamers than females. And I think this old idea of gamers being almost entirely male has truly been left behind at this point. We also found that 62% of respondents watch esports or games-related video content. So playing and viewing really do go hand in hand. YouTube was the most popular platform in the US for watching esports or games related video content. And this really underlines the the enduring popularity of video on demand platforms. So even though Twitch is probably the most well known in terms of games related live streaming, it actually fell well behind YouTube, um, not just in the US, across all the markets we surveyed. In terms of devices used for gaming, the majority of US gamers reported using a smartphone. Um, And this is obviously not surprising given that they are very accessible, portable. Um, And we also know that over 80% of the US population owns a smartphone. 
Interestingly, although mobile gaming was the most widespread, play on smartphone is much more concentrated in the morning, so maybe during the commute or a lunch break, whereas evenings were far more dedicated to play on specialist devices like consoles. Really what this suggests is that console gaming is broadly preferred, but mobile gaming is a satisfactory replacement or secondary option when maybe location or time doesn't allow for more immersive play on dedicated devices. It sounds like a lot of people are watching a lot of esports slash games related video. How much time do they spend doing this and does it differ between the different demographics? Yes, so Twitch proved far more popular among the younger age ranges, probably unsurprisingly. Uh, And one of the things that really differentiates Twitch from YouTube, for example, is the level of interactivity it affords the viewers. So rather than just a live streaming service, it has become more of a social platform where you can interact with both the streamer themselves and also the other viewers. And this is clearly something that really resonates with the wants and the needs of the younger generations. And of course, it's also something that has been amplified by the pandemic. As for the amount of time people spend watching games-related video, um, this has quite a broad range. So although a quarter of the respondents said they spent less than one hour per week watching games-related video, more than a third said they spent upwards of five hours per week, which is quite a significant amount of time, around 43 minutes per day on average. So really, we have people interacting with games-related video at all levels and timescales. You mentioned that console gaming is broadly preferred among the US audience. Which devices are the most popular and do you see much in the way of ownership overlap? So we know that the PlayStation 4, the Xbox One and also the Nintendo Switch are the most popular consoles. And the PlayStation 4 was most favoured among respondents in the US. At the same time, though, the results of the survey confirmed something that really we already knew, which is that the Xbox brand is much more powerful in the US than it is in other Western markets. So although people clearly have their favourites, there's definitely still a significant amount of overlap in terms of console ownership. Uh, 26% of console users said they owned both a PlayStation 4 and an Xbox One, and a third used both a PlayStation 4 and a Nintendo Switch. There'll be a number of reasons for this. So some content might be platform exclusive, for example, uh, but also users typically like to go where their friends are and will purchase the same devices so that they can play online together. Basically, consumers in the US and, well, not just in the US, but across the world, are likely to own and also use more than one console. And this is a trend that we see across gaming devices more broadly. Most gamers are multi-platform users. Is there anything that stands out about the US market, especially when you compare it to the other surveyed territories? Yes. So one thing we noticed in particular was the spending. It's generally much higher in the US than in other markets, both East and West. This is not actually that surprising, given we know that US consumers are particularly willing to spend on entertainment products. But what's particularly notable is the high spend among 13 to 15 year olds. It's far higher than any other surveyed market, which indicates that teenagers in the US have much greater spending power, or perhaps they just have parents that are more willing to support their gaming habits financially. So I think um, we can deduce that targeting this early teenage group could certainly be beneficial in the US market because they have the ability to spend and they are. We also noted the high proportion of respondents using mainstream sports video platforms to consume video games related content in the US. Um, ESPN was second only to YouTube and Fox also ranked very highly. Sport is really a key part of US culture, I think, and this feeds into the prominence of these mainstream platforms, even among gamers or non-traditional sports fans. 
Thank you very much, Louise, and to all of this week's panellists and guests. That concludes this episode of the AMP podcast. Thank you all for listening. We will be bringing you another episode next month, looking at some of the latest trends and changes we've been seeing in the media market. So be sure to tune in then. Thank you.